Hello, and welcome to the Antioch Fort Worth weekly podcast. At Antioch, our desire is to cultivate a passion for Jesus and his purposes on the earth. To connect with us in community, partner with us through giving, or visit on a Sunday morning, please visit AntiochFortWorth.com. It's good to have those good introductions. I'm getting to know these people better, and they know bad stuff about me, so I'm real... I'm just very grateful for that introduction. It was a, a relief. Lord, help us today as we talk about something that is way beyond us. Uh, you have become flesh and dwelt among us, and you haven't left. And we just forget. <clears throat> so help us, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Help me, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. So the word becomes flesh. That's not virtual reality. That's not a game you're playing on video. It's it's real. After a thousand years, and that's the story of that Old Testament of our idolatries and brutalities and exile, just when we thought the Lord God would sue for divorce, he sends Jesus. This is astonishing You know, I can just have ministry time now. I mean, really. We we have talked about this and some way trivialize it with words. You know. This is what Tolkien calls the eucatastrophe. He made up a word. A eucatastrophe is the astounding and unforeseen good happening that rescues billions of people. It is the polar opposite of a catastrophe. You catastrophe. Jesus comes and completes the story of I am. Not just the God we project, the I am of the burning bush, the I am. The Graydon was talking about at, the, at Sinai. The I am who was hovering over the chaos, who was calling Abraham, who comes near at the burning bush, who's near at Sinai and the tabernacle and the temple and the prophets. He's Emmanuel of Isaiah 7, God with us. He cannot help himself, God, or he doesn't want to, one or the other. That is God's suffering identification with human beings and his participation in man's predicament is the elemental reality in the whole story of the Bible. He just loves and never quits. He identifies with. It's like, I don't know how to put it, empathy on steroids. He's identified with us. And this identification of God with us that's in the prophets by the Holy Spirit compels them. They grieve. They love Israel to speak judgment and hope to Israel. Everybody that speaks judgment in the Bible has tears running down their cheeks. This loving identification with us compels I am the, the, the Lord God. That's what, that's the literal translation, that's the literal rendering of the word that we, that's translated Lord in your Bibles. The Lord God, the God of revelation, not the God of psychological projection. Lots of those running around. This God becomes flesh in Jesus. 
But it's at the end of that story, and when you see it, you think, well, he just, you know, he's made a fool of himself. Become a man. He, he comes, and what does Jesus do? He cries a lot about us. He loves us with compassion. The Greek word for that, refer it's womb love, a mother's love. Innards embracing the feeling or the situation of another. That's the way Jesus loves us and loves us still. So what you have going on in the Bible is that the suffering of God began long before Jesus got on the cross, and it still continues. If you're suffering today, God suffers with you. He's been doing this for a long, long time. This isn't a new personality change. He's been doing this. This is what this story is telling us. The Lord God, creator of heaven and earth, became the true Israelite, the baby boy of an unmarried teenager in Bethlehem. It was scandalous, and it still is. I encourage you to meditate on it, contemplate it forever, every day. The Lord had initiated the vision originally, Genesis 12, with Abraham, and now the Lord initiates Jesus to complete the story, calling us to the nations. The faithfulness and patience of God is staggering. The Spirit is the one who's doing this in the New Covenant Scriptures. The Spirit creates Jesus in Mary's womb, And then fast forward 30 years, 33 years, in Acts 1 and 2, the Spirit creates the church in the womb of waiting believers. It's always God. He creates called out people. So the continuity between the vision of Genesis 12 and the Gospels illuminates and enlarges our hearts and our minds. This is big. So see, when Matthew begins the Gospel of Matthew, he doesn't just start off with Jesus. He gives a 17-verse genealogy of Jesus. I didn't have much use for genealogies for a while. I realized, wait a minute, they're about identity. They tell a story, and they're about identity. This is who Jesus is. It traces Jesus back to Abraham. And it emphatically declares that Jesus is the climax of Israel's story and the I am's intended purposes in the world. Mark, in the first verses of his gospel, quotes Isaiah as anticipating Jesus and John the Baptist. Luke traces Jesus' genealogy back to Adam through David and Abraham. Jesus, for Luke, is the new Adam and the true king of Israel. John, wow, John begins his gospel with way back. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And then through Him all things were made. In Him was life. And His life was the light of men. And the darkness, he says, 60 years later, I think you love this line to write it down. The darkness has not overcome it. This word has become flesh. All that we are, he became. What is not assumed cannot be redeemed. This is all that he says, and he has made him known. 
God has been made known perfectly by the embodied Son of God, not by me dreaming up a God I'd love to have. In John, Jesus clearly identifies himself with I am. He calls himself I am seven times. I am the light of the world. I'm the bread of life and so forth. So the Christian story is the story of a one-time grand miracle, a mighty work of rescue beyond space and time. The I am who is uncreated, eternal, became one of us, descended into death, rose again, and now rules and reigns, bringing the creation and including us up with him. If you take this away, there's nothing to get out of bed for. No, there's nothing. There's nothing specifically Christian left. It is the fullness of God on stage. What the great 17th century poet John Donne called immensity cloistered in a womb. That never escapes me, that immensity cloistered in a womb. Only Don could do that. I mean, wow. It is either that or it's nothing at all. You can't have it both ways. See, incarnation is not a Zoom call. <laughs> and you, you gave, we, we gave God the link you know, like we dreamed this up, and he didn't give us a link. It's not a Zoom call. It's about leaving heaven, coming, entering, abiding, light, life. That's what we experience here. We take it for granted. Light. We know about the love of God. Light, life an interactive presence with God and with each other. Amen. See, darkness and absence are driven away. Darkness and absence scare us, and they kill people. I read a book years ago called The Medical Consequences of Loneliness. More people die alone in a hospital in the dark between 1 and 4 a.m. than any other time. Technology does not dispel darkness, and it does not dispel absence. Presence is just about the most beautiful thing. Somebody you love being present doesn't get any better than that. Technology does not know that the ultimate reality is personal. Personal. The light years are not all. Jesus is Lord of the light years. And in Jesus, only in Jesus for certain do we know this. It's personal. Now, this didn't all just land here nicely one day, and we all believed it. We don't believe in believing. This was God in the flesh, but we did not immediately know it to be the case. The revelation of his identity was filtered through the crucibles of birth, the tedium of time, Testing, miracle, parables, foot washing, suffering, death, resurrection, and ascension. Finally, after the resurrection, 
Thomas said, my Lord and my God. The revealing of Jesus, full and complete humanity, begins happening right in front of us. This is, on that, this is not an avatar. It appears to be a God. He had umbilical connection, cord connection to his mother. The life of Jesus in the Gospels never loses touch with historical reality. And the drama's in the details, just like it is with us. Born in the usual way, he grew up in wisdom and in stature and favor with God and man. But it is, and it is his humanity that is obvious as he walks with them. You know, he's thirsty, he's exhausted, he's frustrated. He sleeps and he grieves. And after he died, six hours, he, he was put in grave clothes and buried in a dark tomb. But he did not just take on our humanity. He did not just take on our limitations and vulnerability. He entered into our inhumanity, our circles of darkness, and we've got them. Circles of darkness. Chaos is our new normal. We play God, and because we do play God, Jesus, Jesus just really, anybody with power, he, he made them feel, he didn't feel secure with him. So we beat him up, and we executed him. And Jesus did not react. You know, just don't react. Isn't that what Jesus is saying? Don't return evil for evil? Just don't react. He responded to God. And then he did something. He was tempted like us. That means Satan got to him. But he did not turn him. If, if Satan didn't get to him, he's not one of us. But if Satan turned him, he can't save us. He's without sin. He identifies with us. So who is this man walking around? Those guys that were walking around with him three years, man. For three years, they were reaching for words. Rabbi? Prophet, Moses, Elijah, whomever. Then the big leap one day with, with Peter says he's the Messiah, which means he's the anointed one. But even Messiah did not fit the evidence. I have kind of, I'm a lawyer's mind because of all those years, and it didn't fit the evidence. There's more going on here than even Messiah because he forgives sins, and only one person does that, God. Basically, when he first started forgiving sins, that big building down there, the temple's irrelevant because that's what they went there for. So Jesus is forgiving sins. He walks on water. Because, and that only I am has power over creation. He speaks with authority without even trying to, right? And the power he has. His mighty works were impressive and confounding. He healed diseases, he still does. He touched 
and healed lepers. And, and he's always wanting to have a relationship with somebody he's touching. This is all unprecedented. The rabbis who study him say, Jesus is unlike any rabbi we know of. So this witness continues for two to three years. And in, and in Mark chapter eight, the disciples look at each other and say, you know, they, well, Jesus looks at his disciples and said, do you guys not still understand? And they didn't. See, what I want you to understand, the suspicion and the unbelief in them is like us. These disciples were not first century gullible fools who believed all kinds of mighty works. Everybody does this stuff. No, they don't. They didn't believe that then. That was not true then. It's not true now. Just the opposite. They were very skeptical. Remember Thomas? Jesus is standing right there in front of him after the resurrection. He says, I have to put my hands in your side. And we gave him a bad, we, we kind of bare-knuckled Thomas ever since then. Actually, he's saying, give me the evidence. And if you're God in the flesh, man, I got to have a little more evidence here. That's not bad. It all comes down to this, as Dorothy Sayers says in Creed or Chaos, if Christ was only man, then he was entirely irrelevant to any thought about God. But if he is only God, he is entirely irrelevant to any experience of human life. It is his life as God in the flesh that makes everything, that, if, that makes effective everything he does forever and ever. He was in every respect a man. He was not merely a man so good as to be like God. He was God. I think that brings it together. Not only that, but the character of God was on display. He reflected compassion and holiness, judgment and grace. Strength and meekness, kindness and power like nobody else, ever. But you know what? He also was wrathful. He expressed judgment, but it was an expression of compassionate holiness. It was not an anger fit. It was a consistent revulsion against what kills people, sin, death, and Satan. He spoke destruction against the temple because the Levitical priesthood is gone and people bought and sold the right to run the temple and become millionaires. He was ticked off at that. This is, you know, this is all gone. It's corrupted. It's deeply sad. But he doesn't just leave it at judgment. He says it'll go down, but it'll be rebuilt in three days. That's Jesus. You know, he turns out to be truly human, mind, body, and emotions. He expressed his emotions. He helps us understand what masculinity is and human being a human being is. But you also understand something that if you're truly a human being, that's what he came to do is create real human beings, then you become godly. I used to think you became religious. No, if you're really human, you're like God. Now, God's not just a human, but his, we are made in his image. And so when we look at this, we say, this is who God is. He went after and welcomed into his life 
the unchurched, the unclean, the unwanted. The whole thing was un. Nobody that was wanted. There was always an un. The lost. And the lost for him in that time, right there walking with feet on the ground, the lost were those who did not know their spiritual address. They didn't know where home was. Nobody was saying welcome. And those people start breaking into him and to his parties with extravagant gratitude then and now. Luke, in chapter 2, identifies the world. I just I want to nail down the historical aspect of this because, you know, there's, there's people that, that teach religion even at uh, TCU, I'm sure. And, I, you know, if I, if I was sitting there, I might have a few things to say. <laughs> and really, really, I think we need to be talking and, you know, and sharing truth, talking about it. But I just want you to understand that in chapter 2 of Luke, he identifies the world and local rulers at the time of Jesus' birth. Secular history confirms that. One chapter later, when Jesus is 30 years old, he accurately identifies the change in administrations in Rome and Judea. Secular history confirms that. So what I'm saying is, Luke's saying, this is not a mythological story in a land of make-believe. This guy really lived. And this is an ancient biography, which is a genre known at the time. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All of this is really happening in their neighborhoods, and it's happening in our neighborhoods. The first three Gospels are dated within 30 years. Well, Mark is dated within 30 years of Jesus' death and resurrection, and the last is only 60 years later. We don't begin with just a good guy in the earliest Gospel, Mark, and then we got the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit in John. No, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are in the first chapter of Mark. There's no time for myth to develop here. There's no time for legend to develop here. From the get-go, the mighty works of Jesus are on display. All four Gospels are really concerned about what happened, what really happened. And after a long look, all conclude with a resounding confession that Jesus of Nazareth is Israel's Messiah, is God among us, and is the Redeemer Lord of the world. The mystery of God has come to be known personally and concretely in a concrete human life. Now, something else about this. We cannot say this mighty act of God is probable. I get that. It's improbable. In the sense, it's not in the sense that this book right here, if I drop it, and I'm not going to do that. I thought about doing it. I don't want to shock anybody. But, but if I turn loose of this book, gravity takes it down every time. If I do it 10 straight times, I'm expecting gravity to take it down 10 straight times because that's what nature does. Nature is about what is predictably repeatable. History's not. History, by contrast, is about events that may happen only once. 
And we could go into a lot of events that have happened only once in the history, but this event for sure was once for all, unrepeatable. The reason being, God did it. He did it. What he planned to do, he did it. He didn't need to do it again. The Apostles' Creed skips. That's my only argument with Apostles' Creed. It's a great declaration of faith. goes back to the second or third century. It skips from the virgin birth to the death of Christ. It's as if all the material in the Gospels is of no real significance. So what happens in the church with this is we know why Jesus died, but do we know why he lived? And why does he live now? And what is the big deal? Well, I want to tell you five reasons why it's a big deal. And about the fact that he lives. And that's just as important, if not more, than death. And it's not either or here. It's both and. I'm a both and guy. When it comes to the kingdom, just be both and. (laughs) Because it's not either or. It's not either judgment or grace. God's got to say no before he says yes, and it means anything. So first reason why it's a big deal. God becomes human fully to do once for all only what he can do. Don't need a whole much more wording about that, maybe to say it again. God becomes human. Because I want to tell you, talking about the big deal here, this stuff is way beyond me. So I had to really work hard just to get anything down that made any sense. You know. So, really, because this, this, isn't, this isn't fluffy stuff. You can really mess it up easy. It's easier to mess it up sometimes because this is just magnificence, what it is. Deep, mysterious. But he became human fully to do once for all only what he can do. He entered into where we are. He did. God did. And he did it. And he did it perfectly. He too shared in our humanity, so by his death he might break the power of death. That is the devil. He's made like them. He's fully human in every way. When he shouted, it is finished, that's a victory cry at the end of the Gospels. He didn't mean Friday's over. (laughs) He meant his whole life, his purpose, his victory is done. And really what he's kind of, to me, what he's saying is, we did it, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we did it. Because it took all three. The second is, this is a decisive, the reason why this is a big deal is because Jesus reveals, reveals the I am God as Father. This, this uh, cosmos we live in right now can be a little depressing in the light years out there. And you know, I heard a great you know, museum in, in New York that said, isn't it good that we're all going to be stardust someday? Hey, I didn't think so. Uh, I have a father. I believe that reality is personal. The decisive revelation in Jesus is the I am of creation and the exodus 
is, is Father God, and therefore he says to us to pray, our Father. More than 60 times in the Gospels, Jesus says, my Father. 40 in the Gospel of John. Richard Dawkins is the most prominent skeptic in the world right now, writes a lot of books, gets a lot of press. And he describes the world as pitiless indifference. I appreciate Dawkins just let, talking his hopelessness out loud, being honest, pitiless indifference. That's the ultimate reality. You drop dead, nobody cares. Nobody cares. Jesus describes this world as my father's world, a personal world. Dawkins believes in cause, effect. Cause, effect. Jesus says, no. Yes. 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 Because the world Jesus lives in is personal. And it is reality. And man, that's good news. The third, why it's a big deal. The presence of God is back. Jamie's been talking about exile. Exile means it's barrenness. Nobody's heard of him, the Holy Spirit in 600 years. Ezekiel sees him leave the temple. He just got tired of all that idolatry. My goodness, it had gone on for 800 years. Uh, and you know what the scripture says? Is the fullness of God is in Jesus. God's presence, his spirit is in Jesus. In Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And it says, in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. Yeah. And that this is because the, the fullness of God lives in you. Jesus is a Holy Spirit baptizer. Somebody asked me the other day, do you believe in the spirit and, and the gifts? I said, yes, everybody does. Some, uh, you know, I mean, uh, uh, let's put it this way. Everybody has them, even if they don't believe in them. Because we are, we are weak and empty without God and his gifts. And there, when I start saying to God, you know, I need that gift, but not that one. Like, come on. That's just not good. I don't know. I need, we, we are desperate for God. And when John the Baptist tells Jesus, Jesus, you're going to baptize, and he tells us, Jesus is going to baptize in the Spirit. That is good news. That shot adrenaline into people because they hadn't heard from God in a long time or hadn't been a prophet in 400 years. God's back in fullness. That's back. And that means that Christ is all supreme. So what, that, what does that mean for us? It means live by the revelation of God in Christ, not by psychological projection of a higher power or something. We have no authority to tweak this. So don't tweak. I want to tweak it. I want to stay in the church. We don't want to gut God. We just want to tweak him. So that actually he ends up not being the God of Jesus. 
Don't do that. Just live with the fullness of this revelation. This is, this is wonderful stuff. This is good news. Number four, he brought the new and transforming initiative of God to rule and reign in the world. You know, Jesus, God in the flesh, proclaims and demonstrates the kingdom of God for us now. The kingdom of God is here for us now. The good news is that Jesus Christ is Lord and he reigns forever and ever. Whatever is happening to you, the death, the disasters, you know, the kingdom, there's been a transforming initiative of God. He rules. He is Lord and he reigns forever and ever. And the subplot of it was that he bound Satan, that he defeated his, the powers of death. And he defeated the power of sin to imprison us and to paralyze us and that he's coming to destroy Satan. It's not enough to say, well, Christ died for my sins and I'm gonna go to heaven when I die. And Jamie, you know, Jamie talks about that and because that's just a tiny bit of this. You need to know that Jesus Christ is Lord when you feel powerless and when the people around you are just on your case and making you feel like an idiot. And it's as if we have all the authority. You know, I, I, I told you when I was doing the creation sermon, I don't, I don't give the authority to the Republican Party. I don't give the, Repar the authority to the Democratic Party, red or blue. I, I want them to be about an inch high in my life. Jesus! He's 10 feet tall. 20, 30, whatever. He's Lord. Curious. That means he breathes all the air in the room. He created the air. So the fact that the kingdom is here, the way the kingdom comes is through the cross. Yeah. So this is really important. Remember I said, do we, we know why he died. Do we know why he lives? How, you know, why does he live? To bring the kingdom on the earth. Someday the whole place is gonna be the kingdom of God in consummate glory. Mike is gonna talk about all this next week. The last thing is he came to renew and reconstitute the people of God. That's what he came to do. He called 12. He didn't call 11. He didn't call 13. He called 12 because, okay, he's got 12. Does that mean, you know, and see, by then, all of the 12 tribes have just, they're gone. They don't exist anymore. There's no Levitical priesthood. So he's going to gather a new people of God together. Yes, yes that's what he's going to do. He is, he's, and it's going to be around Jesus. Now, what we need to understand about this is that if you invite Jesus to take over your life, he will, and he'll bring his friends. <laughs> Not your friends. Not my friends. His friends. So I don't get to pick. So if you're in a church and you don't like anybody around you, <laughs> you don't leave, you've got some work to do. 
You need to become more like Jesus so you can understand that why is it I don't love Jesus' friends? When you invite, I wanna, I wanna repeat this. I don't do this Jesus thing, Jesus and me, but the church I hate, oh, come on. It's gotta be a real flesh and blood down on the street thing happen somewhere. And what I love is that when Jesus comes into your house, man, there's a long line of people coming in with him. And you don't get to pick. And you don't say, we got enough here. And they're, they're all, you know, they've got all these different ways of talking. And they smell different. They don't look like me. They don't act like me. But they're his friends. And they're in your local neighborhoods. And he didn't want two churches, one for the, you know, you end up with how many churches? 10,000 now? Melting pot churches are the only kind of churches there are. The rest of them are clubs. Clubs. What does reflect the decisive action of God in Jesus? Forgiveness, reconciliation, and adoption. Yeah. The real church. Where Jesus takes over that church he not only takes you over, he brings his friends and you all grow up together. And the world is transformed by that. Cancel culture dies. It's gone. You don't cancel culture just because you disagree with me. Cancel culture. I delete you? Come on. So we delete people at church. It's real easy to delete you. I unfriend you. You don't get to unfriend anybody. You know all you're told to do? And all I'm told to do, this is why it's real simple and I can't really screw this up. He just says, welcome each other as Christ has welcomed you. That's your work. I don't like you. Welcome them. Welcome each, that's where Romans goes. All that high theology, Oh, man, it gets real in 14 and 15, 16, the Romans. Where does it all go? That we're all together in Christ. We've been reconciled. The Holy Spirit's come. Jew and Gentile belong together. And they still are fighting about these Jewish food laws. Oh, no, we can't. And, and they, Paul hasn't been able to get them intellectually to agree. They don't agree. They don't agree. I don't agree. Welcome each other as Christ has welcomed you. You figure out the issue, and then you make it small. And you welcome each other as Christ has welcomed you. Because Christ has reconciled, God has reconciled us all to himself, and he's reconciled us to each other. And if that's not true, it's not worth getting out of bed on Sunday morning. I guarantee you that. At the end of the day, churches are going to be held together by those who actively fill up the suffering of, of Christ in that church, who love the church with suffering compassion, who hang with a church and love a church for days, for weeks, for months, for years, for decades. Suffer with the church. If the Antioch church is full of people going forward who suffer with this church and remain united like Ephesians 4 is talking about, 
this, this church, God is going to do mighty works. Christ is worthy of your sufferings. I don't know, a lot of things aren't worth suffering over, but he is. And the very model of how this all works started with his suffering, with his humility. So I, I, I found over a long period of time, and this is not an ego trip, the suffering love of Christ in me. They, when Paul talked about, I'm, I'm, I'm filling up the sufferings of Christ, I kind of flipped past those passages. What? What's that? Oh, the longer I'd stay in churches, I'd say, people who suffer me, who put up with me, who love me, who've suffered with me when I screwed up, when I was preaching and they didn't understand what I was doing. And I said things I shouldn't have said, did things I shouldn't have done. Suffered with me. You know it in a parent, how, how parent we do it with our children. Suffering love holds families together, holds marriages together. Hey, it's, all, it's the only thing. God's Holy Spirit in us, suffering with us, saying Christ is worthy of our sufferings in this church. This creates a real place, a real launching pad that will not, dis, not fall apart because there's some kind of disagreement or some kind of this or that. So Lord, fill us with that. Fill us with your love with that compassion fill us Lord help us we thank you so much that you have become flesh and you have not left we thank you uh, that you not only died but you live and that this whole thing is really real right now real help us Lord help us and Lord if we if, Help us this morning as we go into the ministry time to repent and help us to ask you to help us love this church and love everybody around us and love the world. We pray that the love of God in Christ fills this church. We pray in Jesus' name. So I ask that the... Uh, <clears throat> ministry team, then the music team come up, and would you all stand, please? We're going to have a, a, a time, as you do every week, of uh, prayer and ministry. <clears throat> In the room, there's, there's sickness, and if you have sickness, come down, please. God heals. You know, we don't believe God can heal. That's kind of a theoretical statement. We believe he is healing and has been in Christ because the kingdom's here. So if you need that, ask for that. Ask You can come and receive that. You receive it from the person standing next to you. This room is full of people who can minister the presence of Christ. Uh, repentance, prayers, just prayer. You know, I said that what we believe that reality is ultimately personal. This church has time for you. You are a person. Christ died for. So let's minister to each other and as the music plays, as the Holy Spirit works on our hearts. <clears throat>